Hello, podcast listener. Today's episode of JJ Meets World features executive director of the Red River Zoo's Hallie Jacobson. Wah, 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 wait. You might be saying we already interviewed her. Well, good news. This episode takes place at the Red River Zoo instead of at our studio. We mic'd up. We got to walk around the space. It's going to sound a little bit different, but boy, oh boy, you get a private guided tour by the head honcho over at the Red River Zoo. You're going to love it. Plus, Tucker and I talk about how we feel more for things like dogs and kittens than we do for you, the listeners. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of JJ Meets World is brought to you by Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty. Natalie has a proven track record to get your home sold faster and for more money. She is consistently focused on her clients' needs and wants throughout the entire process and make sure that they are well taken care of. If you're looking to buy or sell, reach out to Natalie today. On average, Natalie sells a home every 3.74 days. That's at least two a week. And last year, Natalie earned her clients on average over $4,000 above list price on their homes. And you don't have to take our word for it. Here's some of the great reviews Natalie has received. I was overwhelmingly impressed with Natalie and all the Hatch team. She was very responsive and responded to all of the emails within an hour. She gave great advice and encouragement from the listing and pictures, the offer and all the closing details, the marketing team team knew exactly how to promote my property and I was pleased by how soon and easily my property received an offer. I was actually dreading selling my condo and Natalie did such an awesome job that I felt like I really didn't need to do anything. The thing I most appreciated was that she really listened to what I wanted to do and respected my decisions. I would definitely recommend Natalie and all the Hatch Realty team. They made this process so wonderful. That was from Diane. So listen, if you're in the mood to buy or sell a home, give Natalie a call right now. You can reach her at 701-388-9338, Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, at hatchrealtyfm.com, or you can go to livefargomorehead.com, that's livefargomorehead.com, and find out some information. Huge thanks to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty for sponsoring JJ Meets World. One, two, three, four. J.J. Gordon, sort of like that Indiana Jones in that he's always snipping out his next adventure. Yes, he is. He's always interviewing guests so he can have them on his show and they can talk about pop culture, arts, and leisure. J.J. has his flag unfurled and he likes his french fries curled and he's fun and then he twirls as he goes to meet the world. He will march into the rain even if his ankle sprain. Take a peek inside his brain. This podcast is called J.J. Meets World. Days before this recording, there was a notice on an app I use called the Next Door app, which verifies that you live in the house that you live in, and then you can communicate with your neighbors. So if there's a lost dog or if someone needs a roofer, there was a notice about guinea pigs that had been found in West Fargo, and if they're yours, to call the West Fargo Police Department to claim them. So... First of all, I find it funny that somebody, a cop's job was to go pick up and then care for some guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. Because when I think of a police officer in that moment where they're like, I'm going to get into this, like no one joins Starfleet with the idea that you're going to be the one who vacuums the bridge at night. This story does raise all sorts of questions. It does. It does. Did the cop find guinea? It's plural, multiple guinea pigs. It looked like it was about six. So were they 
like loose or were they in a cage together that someone left the cage somewhere? They did not say. So part of me wants to think that someone abandoned this pet, which is unfortunate, right? right. right? But it's not like they were baby guinea pigs. These were full grown guinea pigs. So is it possible? Also, guinea pigs are a pack animal. So it wouldn't have been totally weird to think that someone spotted all of them together. Right. And I'm just, I would really like clarification on how they were found because if they were just free range guinea pigs at that moment, that's some serious dedication of that officer to go, all right, we found, I've found four so far. Some tells me there's two more around this <laughs> briar patch somewhere. Let's keep digging fellas. You guys, let's put a water bottle out and see if we can attract yeah. some no, over here. No Guinea pigs left behind on my mm-hmm. watch guys. Um, I have not seen whether or not they were returned to an owner or if they are now going to become property of the city of West Fargo. But it did make me think, what if the city did take control of those guinea pigs and they made them like a little mini guinea pig dynasty mm. for the city of West Fargo, <laughs> where they are all given an honorary role as part of the city government. And we can really get behind this because people love animals. Even people who don't think of themselves as pet people. Yeah. There is something about an animal video when you watch it. Uh, there's something about sort of the magic of a creature who inhabits the same earth and has the same wants that you do. Right. But is not you. A lot of people um, find it easier to target their empathy towards animals than fellow human beings. I'm definitely one of them um, because the relationship is just different. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, here's an example. The movie volcano came out the same summer as Dante's peak Mm -hmm. two movies about volcanoes at the same time. What's going on in Hollywood? There's a scene. The movie of volcano is what happens if a volcano erupted in the middle of Los Angeles. Tommy Lee Jones plays this emergency manager. And so there's a scene where the, the it's lava once it's above the ground, right? And it's magma below. Uh, sure. You're not one of those guys who's obsessed with volcanoes as a kid. Never. Oh, really? I thought your love of dinosaurs would have led over to a love of volcanoes. Yeah, but it was the meteorites that Mm. did it. Right. Okay. And they're in death from above. What's the difference between a meteorite and an asteroid? I don't don't care. Oh God. Well, I believe it's lava. So (laughs) lava is the difference. Lava is flowing down this street. And I remember seeing this in a packed crowd at Safari cinema in Moorhead, Minnesota. And there's a fire truck that's been overturned and there's a fireman who's trapped inside the cab of the fire truck. And there's a a reporter who's on the phone reporting about what he's seeing and the lava comes and the gentleman dies. He burns alive inside this fire truck. Audience is obviously moved, but no reaction. You know, you don't hear sobbing anywhere in the theater. Two minutes later in the movie, the lava is moving through a residential neighborhood and there's a little dog, like a little beagle mm-hmm. who's in a house. And this woman's just like, my dog, my dog is in that house. Help him, help him. And the dog barks at the lava as it's coming through the house and then grabs his bone, runs through the doggy door. Mm-hmm. I'm already and, like hurting. Yep. And the crowd cheered. The crowd cheers <laughs> when the dog makes it out and the, the woman is reunited with her pet. And I remember as a kid thinking, nobody cared when this human being died, Did trying you? to help other human beings. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> but emotionally completely mm-hmm. taken over. I, I feel like we all co- sort of assume that if it's a human, they're like, they probably partially deserved it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. our <laughs> underlying thought. The whole reason why the John Wick movies work is because they killed his dog. Right. Then, That's a then big we, deal. Then we all thirst for revenge when we see that. Do you ever see the movie Keanu where about mm-hmm. the cat? 
Yeah. See, we love animals. And that's why today's episode of JJ Meets World is special. So for starters, we took it out of the studio and we recorded it live at the Red River uh, Zoo here in Fargo, which is very, a very special place celebrating its 20th year in 2019. It is a place where people have gone for weddings, for education, for just afternoons. My wife went there today before we recorded this because she was jealous that we got to go the other day <laughs> and, and she didn't get a private guided tour by the executive director. Of that's the right. So Sally Jacobson is our guide. And the idea behind this in my mind is not only do you learn about the zoo, but if you're just going to the zoo for an afternoon, you can pop your headphones in mm-hmm. and get this guided tour with Sally. Um, we got to watch the wolves do their wolf thing. We got to see, uh, oh gosh, we got to see like the vet center where mm-hmm. they do all the, the vet veterinarian type thing. Yeah, she even piqued our interest in something called the Viking forest. Yeah. Tucker's oh, very excited about that. I'm so ready for that. We found out that they've got one giant manure pile that they put everything in, like on the outer parts of the ground. We found out about the life-saving measures taken to save a baby calf uh, in the camel exhibit. This is a, this is a pretty gripping episode if right. you love animals. And if you're a frequent listener of JJ meets world, you'll notice that the audio sounds different. We're trying to, since we're trying new stuff going, out of the studio from time to time we're using different mics you know there's wind there's other people so apologies if you there's don't like children not sound. being tasked by their parents no, to be quiet even though they see something's going on running wild uh i hope that you guys really enjoy this episode and remember if you're in the fargo area whether you're on vacation or you live here stop on out to the zoo their memberships are available all the time redriverzoo.org Great events nonstop. Everything from Zoo Brew, where they invite adults to come and enjoy a tasty craft beverage while walking through, to the uh, overnights for kids that they host. So many great events going on at the zoo. Also, if you like this episode, you should check out our previous episode with Sally Jacobson, the number of which is blanking on me right now because that's the one where in the intro, JJ's chair breaks within three seconds of him mm. beginning to speak, and I don't catch a breath from laughing for 10 minutes. Mm. Well, thanks for bringing that back up. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, That's folks, greatest hits right there. Go back and enjoy that previous episode after you finish this episode of JJ Meets World. JJ Meets World. JJ Meets World is at the Red River Zoo. Sally Jacobson, thank you very much for being our guide today. Yeah, thanks for coming out. This is really a fun idea. So start, can we start with a quick history of the yes. Red River Zoo? Yeah, this is a really important year for us, actually. This is our 20th year of being open, and our zoo is really unique in a couple of ways. One way I always say is that maybe the less fortunate way, and then there's a super awesome way. The less fortunate way is that we, um, from the very get-go, we have really developed um, through earned revenue and the generosity of our community for through philanthropic gifts. It's unusual in that, you know, most zoos receive some form of municipal funding for quite a few years to get all their infrastructure done and things like that. Um, So here at our, I always call us small but mighty, we've done all of what we've created out here through the power of our community, which is really fantastic. Um, The other way that we're unique is that we specialize in cold adapted species, or we call them cold climate species. So animals that do really well in areas like North Dakota, they might not just have to be from North America, you might find them from Northern Asia, you might find them Northern Europe. So we do have animals from all over the world, but um, it's much different. Um, I think a lot of times when people come to zoos, they expect to see um, African megafauna like elephants and zebras. 
And we believe, you know, other zoos definitely can take care of them well, no matter what your climate is, but we're here dedicated to those COVID species. That's very cool. This is kind of a hop in day two. There's like kids running everywhere. There's a wedding going on here right now. The animals are like, what's up? I think it, it's a great day to be here because it shows all the facets that you use the zoo for. It is not just a place to come and learn and educate about these great animals, but it's also a community gathering space. It is. It's very much um, like create, we call it creative placemaking, and we're trying to create a very special space in our community. And we really have done that. When the zoo was um, given to the park, the, the land was given to the park and when, about 23 years ago. And when it was donated, it was completely flat farmland, and there was literally seven trees on it. So as you walk through the zoo today, and you see like hundreds of trees and rolling hills and streams, all of that was built um, by zoo staff and volunteers and members of our community. So it's pretty crazy. Well, let's start with this Glaston okay. area right here in your lobby. Yes. So I, I love this exhibit. Do the it's animals fun. in here change? Uh, did you change the residence? We haven't changed the res residence out in here, but we certainly could. And this one's kind of an exception. As I just mentioned, we're a cold adapted zoo. We have cold climate animals, but we do have some warm climate animals, both here in our admissions building and then back in our, um, in our education department. So this is our South American exhibit. So we have our Saki monkey. We have a two-toed sloth up in there, Milo, and then a six-banded armadillo. And what I love about this is that it is a multi-species exhibit. So the animals are living with other animals that, that might be living where they would be natively from. And they're having to kind of uh, deal with things that behave differently than they do. So it's a really nice um, system that we have here. And these guys are not shy. I've noticed they've been showing off, uh, especially this uh, monkey has really enjoyed uh, seeing all the faces and I, new people. I am going crazy for that monkey's ears. That monkey <laughs> has ears that are like baby ears. They're like a little human <laughs> they're like ear. Like yes. Ears. And there's white-faced locket monkeys are different because they're very sexually dimorphic, so the males and females look completely different. So the ones we have in here with the big white faces, those are males. And these two are actually uh, siblings. We have Comet and Zeke. One is really outgoing and, um, and one is a little bit more shy, which is quite interesting. All the animals have their own, they're individuals, you know, so they're all, they're all different. Uh, so when you come to the zoo, I can't remember if it's common, I think, who's in the front. He'll usually be the one on the front and he sometimes puts his hands and our paws up against the window what? for people to put on. While his brother will have mirrors hanging in there. One day, you know, we do different enrichments, so every single animal in the zoo gets some kind of um, physical and mental stimulus that's new every single day. And we're trying to encourage uh, species-specific behavior so that they have the choice to behave in ways that they would in the wild, but also keep them mentally alert and physically strong. And one of the things you can do for primates is give them mirrors. Because um, they like to, they can recognize themselves in mirrors and they use mirrors for all sorts of shiny You're very objects, egotistical. Right, right. But I noticed one day that he was always looking, he was always faced away from here one, that particular day and he was looking at the mirror and I was trying to figure out, okay, does he have self-recognition going on here? What's happening? And I realized when I started to move the mirror, he would move, or he, I would move, he would move the mirror and realize he was watching people. Oh, yeah. is that cool? He's using his mirror to watch people. They'll even use the rocks in there to um, do their nails. I mean, it's pretty amazing to, to watch their behavior. Um, so yeah, these guys, these are pretty fun. And that like, little guy over there, that is our six-banded armadillo, that is Rolo. He's awesome. Isn't he cute? Yeah, and he's very much, I can tell, he's the, the chatty Kathy of this, uh, this group it's because like, he really likes to know what's going on. Yep. Yep. It's bursts of energy though. And then he's just like out, he totally, and he sleeps on his back and he runs in his sleep, which is really adorable, his little feet. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with dinosaurs and my 
uh, great aunt uh, in Cincinnati would take us to the zoo there because she was tight with a lot of the people there. Yeah. And I was obsessed with the armadillos because they look like ankylosaurs. So anytime I saw any animal that was like remotely like a dinosaur, so come see the armadillo. Yeah, they're River really cool. Do they really ball up and like roll? They ball up pretty good. They don't roll, but he'll ball up. You know, that would be like a reaction to protect themselves. And um, and they actually are fantastic swimmers. They float really, really well. They have a lot of fat in their body, and they float. So they're sometimes the pontoon of animals. They are. <laughs> That's nice. And these guys are not the same as the ones you might find in um, North America. You know, in, in Texas or someplace. It's a, di a different species of armadillo. So and then of course Milo, who's up. Oh, he's right there. It's almost like he's on a hammock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the two-toed sloth. The two-toed sloth. Oh, look at this. This is great. He's right in the front. Often he's in the back. Because, of course, sloths don't uh, move about too often. They have very slow metabolism, so they're going to spend a lot of time just relaxing. <laughs> uh, but we do, um, he does move around several times a day, so if you're lucky enough to get out when he's moving around, it's pretty fun. When a movie comes out that features a particular animal, I'm thinking um, Zootopia came out and it, the sloth was worked at the DMV. Yes. Do you get a bunch of kids who now become super interested in the sloth because yes. they've seen it in a movie? Yeah, it's interesting too um, that certain animals will just kind of become popular all of a sudden too, not even related to, to a movie or pop culture, but it's like, oh, how come everybody is super interested in octopuses right now? I don't know what it is, but we try to be, yeah, it's interesting. But yes, any, those movies, they actually do have zoo professionals that assist with those movies to kind of make sure that they are accurate to the species behavior and oh. yeah, that's really cool. Well, all right, okay, let's, let's, ta let's take a stop into the zoo. All right, wonderful. All right, so if you come out of the, the main ent entrance into the zoo yep. and you take a right, the first thing we arrive at is this uh, shelter, this plexiglass and wood shelter. Yeah. And what are we looking at in here? So this is our North Amer American porcupine exhibit. So we are just, if you go into the zoo and you go to the right, that's our North America. The first exhibit here, North American porcupines. This one we just opened last year. It's a fantastic exhibit. We do have two porcupines right now, Daisy and Olivia, and we're expecting a male fairly soon to come along our way. But what I really love about this exhibit is one that it's almost all glass, so you can see them from wherever you are standing and wherever they are at in the exhibit. Uh, we also put a lot of thought um, into whenever we design an exhibit. You know, people are always asking what's new, new, what's new at the zoo, new, but you also, in addition to bringing in new things, new things to do, new animals, you want to refresh the older ones because as our knowledge of that species behavior uh, increases as an industry or as animal behaviorists, we know that we need to change how we're housing them for their welfare. And so these guys were on the slot for quite a while to have a new exhibit, exhibit done because their old one was over 20 years old and we needed to get a new one. So this one, I, what I love about it, we tripled the amount of space that the porcupines have. They have living grass, living trees, and then in the back you see those two dead trees. They're actually put in, we have poles into the ground. Um, so those trees can be pulled out and moved, and we put new ones in. That way you're changing the climbing structure that the animals have too. So I just absolutely love this. And then we've got two of them here. Today is a hot day. They do have an indoor building, um, but it's not too hot for them, so they're outside. But one of the things people ask is, how do you keep your animals cool in the summer? Um, 
So they all have indoor areas that are cooled for them. But like we can do creative things like right now you see you're leaning on that big rock. Yep. We freeze boulders overnight. <laughs> in our freezers, we freeze big rocks and boulders and you put them out and they lay, on, lay their bellies on them and cool down. Really? So, yeah. Oh and then do people ever have problems where they get stuck by the quills? I mean, do they shoot quills oh, or only when you touch them? Oh, that's a really good question. So they do not shoot quills. That's kind of an old wives tale. What they do is they'll back into you or hit you with their tail. But if you approach them from the front, they're really quite fantastic. Um, oh, so amazing. these would be perfect for like at the club. Yeah, that's go. what these porcupines <laughs> are for. <laughs> Don't approach them from behind. And uh, these guys are trained because of all those quills. Um, of course, it makes it our vet, vet checks really difficult. Um, so they're trained. We have these little, like almost like gymnastic bars that they're trained to stand up on, so that the vet can check their tummies oh, and cool. you know, check their feet and things like that. Well, am I right that like what we're looking at right now, that's their hair we're seeing, isn't it? The quills are like yes, the quills underneath. are underneath. If you were to go like if we were in there and I, you could feel them right away, but mainly towards the back area there, that's where they get quite intense, and they do get a really thick fur in the winter time. So they're almost like clouds. They're so soft in the winter. I remember a few years ago coming here, and you guys had a baby porcupine. It might have been one of these. And it probably was Olivia. Yeah. Okay, and there was a caretaker standing out. Like, you could walk up and pet this baby porcupine, mm -hmm. and it blew my mind that I could pet a porcupine. I know, yes. Um, but I'm, maybe it was just too young to get scared, or did they just get used to people? They get used to peach people, yeah. You can kind of tell, based on the species and the individual, which animals might be good ambassador animals. And porcupines work really well for us for ambassador animals. So these guys we're actually doing a new thing this summer where we're creating more experiences that people can have with the animals. We've hired an experienced ambassador to be out in the zoo every day giving people unique experiences. And so one of the things we're working on right now is rolling out um, people being able to go inside with the porcupine along with a staff member. And what do they eat? I'm always, uh, I'm going to ask you this yes, every about every animal. Everything? What do they oh, eat? No. I'm guessing onions. <laughs> they, do eat a, no, <laughs> they do eat a variety. That this morning for breakfast they had beets and they had apples carrots and they have this like kind of porcupine diet almost like a dog tail kind of thing mm. uh, but they do get a variety of fruits and vegetables we try not too many fruits because you don't want to give them too much uh, fructose but yeah well that's very neat mm -hmm. and then inside this area you know i see the grass is very long mm -hmm. do you ever mow inside of these things yes. or most of the time do you let it go as wild as it can yeah it's a good question it depends on the animal what we do in order to kind of maintain the grass um, so these guys, if they're locked inside, we can mow without really disturbing them or getting them scared, but it really depends on the species. The wolves are a little bit more challenging because we do have to take them off exhibit and we have big lawnmowers we go in with there. Um, some exhibits you just have weed whackers that you go in with. So. I guess the grass is nice bedding though too, at least at this yes, length, we've had a, right now. It looks pretty comfy. Yeah, that looks really nice actually. It does look pretty good. <laughs> we just don't want it to get too out if of control. If this wasn't full of porcupines, I'd lay down there. Right yes, and in this viewing area, again, being resourceful, um, this was actually an old bus stop that was donated to oh, us, cool. so we've recycled it and upcycled it into a, a public viewing area. Very nice. All mm -hmm. right, well, let's move along. Yes, we'll move along to our otters. And one thing, people think that there's not a lot of space at our zoo to grow, and I think that, you know, coming from somebody within the industry that's like, how do they not think that? If you start to look as a guest, look back that way, there's tons of room over there and tons of room. So, can we talk about this too? How do you get new animals? I can't yes. imagine you're just breeding animals in no. here. What happens when it's time for a new exhibit? Yeah, so, so this is, that's a really wonderful question. So with our exhibits, first of all, we do have a very um, 
well thought out and intense collection plan of which animals we will or will not have at the zoo. And that's based on the, of that animal's needs, the expense that it's going to be, the training, all that kind of stuff that we might have for staff, as well as the exhibit itself. But to acquire new animals, we're an accredited institution, so we're accredited through the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, and so we, there's kind of basically a big website that if you're accredited, you can reach out to your colleagues and say, hey, you know, I'm looking at building a North American river otter exhibit within the next two years. If there's somebody that's looking to, you know, move their river otters out, if you have babies, that kind of thing, you know, reach out to me. Uh, and so that's kind of how, how we do it. We don't buy animals or anything like that or sell animals. And we're really strict here at our zoo on breeding. We don't breed animals, you know, just willy-nilly. Although people love to see baby animals, we're very moral about it. The only time that we breed animals at our zoo is if we've been given the go-ahead to breed an animal by the SSP. And what the SSP is, there's SSPs, Species Survival Plans, um, for many, 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 most animals within zoos. Um, and that's a group of people made up of zoologists, uh, geneticists, animal behaviorists that are looking at the genes of the animals, looking at the life history of them, and then telling you specifically which animals your institution can breed. They give you recommendations. The thought is that you're trying to breed the most, uh, let's see, most genetic diversity within the captive pool that you can. So if that animal were to go extinct in the wild, we might be able to have a very healthy, sustainable population uh, for 100 years. So that's kind of the big nerdy stuff behind the scenes. So, <laughs> And I suppose there's a, a lot of this is people don't understand, where they say like, oh, well, you know, gosh, we, we found this moose. We, you know, they captured this yeah. moose. We'll, we'll just give it to the zoo, and then the zoo will just take it. Yeah. But years of fundraising, infrastructure planning, all go into all of these exhibits. So, for yes. example, we're in the otter exhibit I love now. This, one. this mm -hmm. doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't even happen in a year's right. time. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't even remember how many years we had this. It was on our plan for since the zoo opened 20 years ago. Um, but then I guess it was a good couple of years that went into getting the fundraising in place and then the design in place and then before the animals ever even got here. So we do have a 20-year strategic master plan that maps out the specific species that we may or may not have um, in the future, which helps guide us. Uh, so yeah, these guys came. I love this exhibit because this is what we call an immersive exhibit. So the intent of it is when you, we designed it is that it looks like you're going inside of an otter's den in the Red River Valley to try to give people um, that feeling that there's not this separation between them and this animal's environment to kind of mimic that. And I love these big, wonderful ponds. So we do have a big waterfall, two ponds, and then a big pond in the front. And we do have two North American river otters in here. And of course, I think they're up there looking at the people. <laughs> um, the pond itself is heated, but we don't keep water in it all winter just because I'd, we could not afford the expense of heating that. So instead they do have an indoor, smaller indoor pool in their holding building where they go at night in their little bedrooms. So they have water in there all year round. But this is great because we like to fill it with snow. And they love to like kind of sled and play in the snow. So They're kind of one of the really popular exhibits here. They are because otters are they're so charismatic. They move so much and there's just like kind of little comedians, yeah. you know. They eat off their tummies. They do. It's one well, of my these favorites. guys don't. That is oh. actually sea otters. Oh, yes. now, I'm, now I'm embarrassed. Okay. Now I lost my zoo card. Just rip it up. <laughs> is that how that works? Even if a zoo fact wrong, get kicked out? I'm noticing too that there's paw prints in the floor here. Yeah, this floor is really great. So those aren't really from, you know, that the otters didn't actually run through here, but we did get some cast meat of their of their feet when we were doing this floor. I love this floor because originally it was just going to be a concrete floor and we're like, well, 
that's kind of boring. We have all this beautiful, you know, mimicking of the environment. How can we make it look more naturalistic? And so we dyed the, the concrete when we poured it, and then we had our little junior keepers, who are kids that are 11 to 15 that are here pretty much for the whole summer's education program, they went around and picked leaves and put them down to give it this pattern that you see. And then we took um, casts of the eagle, or excuse me, the otter's prints and kind of ran them through as though the otter was running through the um, I love how you have the the limbs of trees and little rocks coming yes. out of the wall too. So it is, it, you said this is an immersive? Yeah, we call it immersive where you're trying to give the humans the feeling that they're in this different environment, an environment more unique or close to that that you'd find the animals in. <laughs> and then I do have to point out uh, that we do all of our own signs in-house. I have this, op in my office we have a sign machine. It's really fantastic. For a zoo our size we have wonderful signage and we can change that out and I can report they are want. not using papyrus font thankfully so we're good <laughs> we're good everybody come check out the signs um, at the zoo so you know we're in the North America right now how many mm -hmm. continents do you have represented at the zoo so um, right now we have we have North America Europe and Asia so I think that's what we got. We don't have anybody, you know, from South America. Oh, wait, South America, we just passed that exhibit. What am I talking about? I guess that's where the, you're going to find those climates at anyway. Yeah. So there are going to be continents you just yeah. want to find. So uh, in our plan, what we have is um, North America, uh, what do we call extreme Asia. Uh, we've got Do you do, do like X-Trim Asia? <laughs> maybe we will maybe we'll see. Surge. Extreme Asia. Brought to you by Surge. <laughs> we have our children's zoo farm, and then in the future we'll have an area which I'm calling Viking Wilderness. So we've got the whole thing mapped out. That sounds exciting, Viking Wilderness. I know, right? Viking Wilderness. That sounds amazing. Coming to you. Yeah. What, when? Just depends. It, um, because some of the animals um, would be ones that we could acquire more, you know, earlier on. So that would be, you know reindeer, stellar eagles, things like that. In the future, before I retire, I would definitely love to break it up and have some more aquatics or have aquatics in our zoo. Um, when you're looking at the zoo's collection plan, we always have had Arctic animals in our collection plan. Uh, but I want to tie it into the community. I like to tie humans into each area too as we are part of the environment. And um, there's so many kind of rich Scandinavian heritage here in, North, in Fargo, of course. And so if you start to look along the coastline of Scandinavia, you find the same animals you're going to find in the Arctic. So you're going to find walruses and jellyfish and puffins and fantastic animals like that. So Very cool. But it's a matter of, again, you have to take one step at a time. Right. I'm just thinking I just really want to go to Viking Forest really bad. I know, right? <laughs> this, yes. I'm already ready to go. I know. Can we go now? I mean, we'll <laughs> load them up on the Viking ship over at the MCOM Center and just <laughs> bring them go. back by hand. Well, huh? see, what I'd love to see is all, like, each area should have more play spaces and they should be themed with that area of the world. So I'd love to see, like, a little Viking mm. ship that they could, you know, like a swing that, or a big one that was shaped like a Viking ship or something like that. All right, as we come out of the otters uh, on the right here, we've this got is, kind of a little a little paddock. Yeah, so this is a little one, and she's actually not on the exhibit right now. She is under veterinary care as Esther, our gray fox, but she'll be returning very soon. Um, but she's one of them that we've made an exception. Earlier I said we get all of our animals from other zoos. Uh, but there are occasions in which we can make exceptions to that. If the animal's within our plan, if it's something that, you know, obviously we can afford to sustain for, for a long period of time, all that kind of stuff. And so she was one that had, I believe she had been a confiscated pet. Uh, we get a lot of calls, again, mm -hmm. we get a lot of calls about people <laughs> who have things that they should not have and no longer can care for them. That we, we can't accept them all. The problem is, you know, we have such an extremely bad exotic pet problem in our country mm -hmm. that every zoo is overwhelmed with people trying to 
you know, get rid of these animals that they realize maybe should don't work for them anymore. Um, so we can we can refer out certain animals. We can refer out to different areas, but you get an overwhelming get a request. dog. Yeah. Yes, I mean we get calls from everything from you know snakes to I've had calls about chimpanzees or giraffes. I mean it's just insane what people <laughs> what people have. Having a chimp is a bad so, idea. So this one I do want to point out real quick because it's kind of like, hmm, what's going on here? After we pass our red, our fox, there's this big green building that says NDSU. <laughs> so this is our conservation research center. So uh, uh, the zoo does a lot of things behind the scenes that people aren't aware of, and we're trying to make people more aware of the really the holistic things that we do. So this here is actually a research center. So students working on their wildlife uh, biology PhD at NDSU PhD candidates. Uh, actually in the back there are doing behavioral research on native, uh, could be birds, small mammals, bats. And so that's always going on, you know, each semester and then they can present on, on their findings here at the zoo. It's kind of a win-win because it gives the students, students from NDSU additional spot to do research and the zoo to talk about some really kind of cool things that are being done for wildlife in our communities. Previous guest Britta Lee uh, on the show is has a zoology degree. This is Britta Nelson, Britta Lee, goes Britta by Britta Ann. Ann all the time. Oh, yeah. uh, and so it's great that you guys can team up with a local college like this and it gives them, yeah. I mean, hands-on experience and who doesn't love a course description that includes like, and you'll be spending one day at the zoo every week. Oh yeah, right, and they're caring for these animals back here. And really, you know, the zoo is, is fun, but we want, we are an education institution and we, we want learning to be fun. And so I think this is a really wonderful way to, to do that. All right, where so are we heading to let's next, Let's go Allie? over to the wolves. They're a fun exhibit. Everyone loves the wolves. I think people harbor under the idea that zoos are meant for children. Right. Zoos are for everybody. And of course, people with small children, they bring them to the zoo. And then we, they become teens. We kind of see people fall off. But we really do. I mean, people of all ages love, love animals. People of all ages are concerned about the environment. Our people of all ages love their community. So we try to do um, adult-only events, like we do the wolf feeding. We also have uh, Zoo Brew, which is a, a beer sampling event, and we do concerts and everything. Because again, it's all about community. So let's see if I can get them. To, hopefully they'll pop up in a little bit here. It's kind of, they're being a little lazy. Well, it's hot. If I yes. could lay down in the grass today too, yes, I would Yes, I know. As well. It's such a hot day. A little tip, any, the best time to visit any zoo is usually right after the zoo opens or shortly before it closes because that's when the animals are usually going to be mm. more active. Um, so this is our North American, or sorry, excuse me, our gray wolf exhibit. I love this exhibit. It's a little cabin when you're mm -hmm. walking up, but it's themed to look like a trapper's cabin and that allows us to tell the story uh, about what happened to uh, America's Keystone wildlife in the 1800s due to trapping and western expansion. Most populations were just decimated. You've probably seen pictures yourself of all of the buffalo hides and things mm -hmm. like that. But then uh, we decided as a, as a country to do something about that. So it's really a great conservation success story that we can tell. Um, and then also it's really wonderful because it's heated and it's cool. The floor actually is, we've got floor heat in a bathroom. So in the wintertime when it's quieter, we can actually have cocktail parties in here, Christmas parties, Girl Scout, Boy Scout sleepovers, all sorts of cool we stuff. We should record a special podcast episode where we're just hanging out with the wolves all night. Yeah, right? It's cool at night because when you slip the lights on in here, they can really see well inside. And so sometimes they're <laughs> pawing at the 
pawing or biting at the windows. Recently in our community, we had a big news story about a wolf-dog hybrid that was roaming like the area. Mm. And at one point the zoo was quoted because I think they, they just talked to you guys at some point maybe or someone in the area. Mm -hmm. Did they reach out to you about, about that yeah. pup? Yeah, yeah, they had reached out to us uh, several times. And we were working with uh, the police department as well to try to give recommendations as to where he might be placed. Because of course everyone says, well, why doesn't the zoo take him? Well. One, he would not survive if we put him in with our wolves, of course. Uh, that was one major reason. Uh, but again, too, you know, with those um, hybrids, you can't guarantee that the, the vaccinations uh, will work. So there's that rabies thing, and so that would not be... We, you couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't have rabies, so that's something we would not introduce to our pack as well. When it's time for these animals to get a vet checkup or, you know, mm -hmm. how... How do you get them to just like be like, hey, come on over here? You yeah. Know, you're not like tranquilized no, no. guarding these things or anything, that's right? That's one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up because <laughs> uh, that's really is, it's pretty cool. So one, we do have a full-time vet on staff here at the zoo as well as a full-time vet tech. So we have vet, veterinarians here at all times. Uh, but all of our animals, uh, we work on using operant conditioning. So it's a training behavior. So we train them to do different behaviors. We don't train them to do, say, tricks per se, but you train them to things um, that allow, one, our staff to work with the animals more safely, but two, that allow the animals, again, that choice to participate. Do I want to participate in this behavior? Rather than do I want to be you know, restrained or, or, or you know, put under, we would, wouldn't want to do that. You only do something like that if there's some kind of emergence situation. Mm -hmm. So all the animals are trained. So the wolves actually, they had different colors. There are shapes in the back there that they're trained to come and stand on. Um, they have recall really? training. The problem right now we're running into is our older wolves are fantastic. They've got that down. You know, our older wolves were hand raised by one of our keepers here. So they're very habituated to humans. Um, but as those wolves grew and aged, of course, we lost one to cancer. We put, their, put them down. Um, and then we ended up with only, when we had three wolves, we had a huge change in the social dynamics where the female just decided that's it. And she went after this male relentlessly to the point where she thought, we thought she might kill him. So we had to put him off exhibit. We were switching. And we now moved him. Again, we reached out to our colleagues in the industry who's, who's looking for a male wolf. He's in Bismarck, and he's the alpha there. He's fantastic. So then we had two. So the plan was we will get pups and bring them in and we'll have the old ones off exhibit, the new ones on, and we'll switch who's on exhibit throughout the day. Because it's very difficult to introduce young ones, you know, to older ones. But when we got them, <clears throat> and in the back, we had them in their little back off exhibit area, you know, they're yelping like puppies and stuff. And the female, you could just watch by her behavior, she was so curious in like a really calm way. Mm -hmm. So we decided, well, let's put Ella in to see what happens. And we put Ella in, of course, with all the safety precautions in place. And she just took over like a mother and gra you know, grabbed them by their scuffs of the neck, and there was no problem. So we were able to integrate both of them. So we do have both our senior, older um, wolves, and we have our young ones in all together. It's so a story that kind of gets repeated a lot as you hear about you know, older animals taking in younger offspring that aren't theirs. <laughs> but whatever, for whatever reason, that that maternal or paternal instinct is still there. They, Isn't they that want quite to. interesting? It's really, really cool. Oh, I kind of... And so, and I got, how many are there total now? We do have six wolves. Whoa. Yep, they're so this all was, together, right? Yep, they're all it, together. So Okay, so a lot of them are, I would call, like, blondies. 
right? Yes, so they're lighter like, shades, yeah. But there is one dark Yes, one darker gray. one. And when we first got him, he was almost black, and then he kind of turned red. Um, and now he's like a dark gray. Oh, they're going to be howling and fighting for everyone. Uh, this is fantastic. I love that you can see their really natural behavior here. One thing that I think is really cool, you mentioned the feedings. We do feed our wolves uh, full deer carcasses. So they get a full deer carcass once a week. So we try to replicate again what they might eat as prey in the wild. It's really cool. So if, if a deer gets hit by a car in town, mm -hmm. the police will bring it in. It's passed away, obviously. The police will bring it here, and then we're able to freeze it and then thaw and feed our wolves rather than feeding them, you know, some other kind of non-realistic diet. Right. It's kind of a win-win for so, everyone. I mean, what do you do to prep it? I mean, do you just literally throw the thing in there, or do you, I mean, do they get it cut yep. up? Or? Yeah, no, we don't cut it up. We let them do what they would do. Um, so again, I said, we, you know, we have to freeze them for 60 days, make sure that everything's safe, then we thaw, and then we take the wolf off, wolves off exhibit, and we just drag it in there, set it in, and we let them uh, eat you get how they normally you would. Like, hide it a little bit until you get to watch them like sort of sniff it out. You and, well, and one of the things you can do for enrichment was really fun is because they are so scent orientated. We can do like blood trails. Sometimes you'll take and make blood trails through yeah. the exhibit and then follow it up and hide like a box full of sheep fur inside of it. Yeah. And so they're hunting and having to look for to find this whatever this new thing is. Um, enrichment can be such a fun, I think, fun for humans and fun for the animals as well. But again, it's encouraging them to use their their natural behavior. I mean, they are so you know right now they're they're immediately to my left, and they are so much bigger. Yes, they are, and right now they're kind of scrawny looking. This time of year, they've lost most of their their big fur, of course. In the winter, they are really, to me, just quite impressive, just beautiful, beautiful. I noticed that the tips of their ears all yes. look like they're severely irritated. Yes, they're not too, yeah, well they do have SWAT on them, so some yeah. of that coloration could be from the SWAT. Again, that's one of the things they're trained to do is to come up and then let us through the fence put the SWAT on their ear to keep so, the flies off. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So the same thing so they put like on cows and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, to okay. keep the SWAT flies off. But the, oh, where I got to where we have the younger ones, they're, they're a little bit more difficult, so, they, so they're taking some more time to, um, to get to do all the behaviors we want. But they're uh, learning. They're learning really good. Oh, they're all going for a drink of water. So how is there like a, a when you're creating an enclosure like this, because mm -hmm. obviously one of these animals gets loose right. in the city, it's a big deal, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you say, gosh, you know, it's recommended that the fence is 10 feet high, so we're going to go 13 feet high. Yeah, we always go above. <laughs> the recommendations? A, the best thing you can do is go above the recommendations and just go as heavy as you can with security. There are no red pandas, right? Yeah, I'll tell you about that red panda later, because that's a whole different story. There must be a sort of worry too in, uh, in in the neck of the woods where it would be it's not unheard of we get 18 inches of snow in a night right. and all mm -hmm. of a sudden now they're a foot and a half higher it, than yes, they were before yes. or massive accumulations throughout the winter so how yes. do you stay on top of that to keep it's, you know the animals safe? It's a safe? lot of work in the winter time the the weather because that is something if it if it blows the snow starts to blow so we have to do we have to clear all the exhibits every every day in the winter time and we do have staff that live on site so and then I myself will come back if there's some other kind of storm going on because you really do need to monitor all of that. So you gotta look you gotta look out for the animals' health, the animals' welfare, um, you know, the animals' security. But then the other thing is you have to look for the people's security because even when you build an exhibit, you know, with the dig you know the dig barriers, the turn back, and all these you know this fence and that fence, you still have humans that are going to be silly sometimes. And 
jump those barriers and jump that or whatever. That's a nice way so, to put it. Yeah, be silly. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I, uh, so you're always designing for both the animals and for your guests. I have the good pleasure of working with someone from the North Dakota Game and Fish Department, and he says the same thing all the time. He says, these are wild animals. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're in a zoo. It doesn't matter if they are uh, yeah. along Highway 10. They're wild animals, and yeah. they're going to protect themselves from mm -hmm. you. And even if you don't mean them harm, they don't understand that. So yeah. Yeah. zoo safety, zoo safety. Yeah, zoo safety. Stay on the pathways. You know? yeah. <laughs> don't stick your arms in places and stay on the pathways. <laughs> well, speaking of pathways, why don't we yes, head on Yes, all right, let's go one. out the pathway. I spent a lot of time in Chicago, and of course Chicago obviously has the Lincoln Park Zoo, which is amazing, but it also has the Shedd Aquarium, yeah. right? So is what's the definition where you draw the line of this is an aquarium versus this is a zoo that just happens to have a lot of aquatic animals? Yeah, I, I think it really is on how many, on how many um, aquatic animal exhibits you're gonna have. Like how many aquarium, how many gallons of aquarium do you represent? There's like kind of this turning point, you know? Like this percentage of my place is, like most of them, aquariums, you're gonna find aquariums are aquariums. It just doesn't make sense, because yep. you just said, but like a zoo, you know when you're at a zoo, but they have some great, great aquariums, whereas an aquarium center is specifically just on um, aquatic animals. It's amazing that behind the scenes at aquariums are, is just incredible to watch. And you look at all of the really like gigantic filtration systems and things like that. I just love the behind the scenes stuff. I think at any zoo or aquarium, because to me it's more fascinating. Yeah, so one thing people always ask, why don't you have polar bears? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> a polar bear exhibit's gonna cost about $30 million to build. Whoa. Because the interior, not only do you have to have all that safety, the really hardcore safety stuff on the inside, but that's gonna be cooled. And that water is cooled. And then you wanna, you know, so it's a, it's a huge endeavor. But when someone does it right, it's just like, mwah, it's magic. Well, we've arrived inside of yes. the uh, bald eagle exhibit. Yes. And so <laughs> what I think is neat from the get-go is when you walk in, mm -hmm. the it looks like you're meant to shut these doors. Yeah. And that's how you gain access into this yeah. Yeah. display. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the doors, the reason we have the doors is normally this is we don't have this fence in the front here at all, this mesh. Um, so we just have an unobstructed view into the eagles because the eagles that we have here are non-flighted. Uh, the eagles that we have and that you'll see at other zoos, uh, we're not hatched at zoos. Their animals are injured in the wild typically. So they're protected species as we all know at this point. So if a bald eagle is hit by a car or runs into a power line and goes to a rehab center and they can't rehab it, they will often place it in a zoo. So ours actually, or non-flighted one is actually his whole wing, his right wing had to be amputated after he was hit Aww. by a car. And so we got a new eagle in this winter and we were told that he's non-flighted because he has the tip of his wing and different things. Uh, and he's non-flighted, but man, he can kind of go up a ways, you know? <laughs> he could go about seven feet and then he can't go any further. So of course he wouldn't survive in the wild, but I thought, I'm gonna put this fence up here until we get to know this individual a little bit better. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful animals. There's a lot of permits that go on with having eagles. You have to have a separate permit for housing them, a separate permit for if you're gonna take them out of the exhibit at all and do an education, of course, for breeding. And every feather in there, we do have to collect and send to the national repository. Really? So one question you get from people, oh, can I have an eagle? It's like, you absolutely not. We have to number those. There's a lot of paperwork. 
That's kind of uh, cool. I also note that a couple of the places we've stopped mm -hmm. are named after people who've obviously donated some money. Yeah. This uh, happens to be the uh, Robert Dawson Robert Memorial. Dawson. This is my great uncle. My oh, great is uncle it really? Bob. Yeah. Oh, and that's he had awesome. a, a real passion for the community. Both yeah. he and my grandfather uh, loved places where the community could gather and the things that made Fargo special. Yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me that his family would want to be very involved, especially with the Bald Eagle, because they're super patriotic dudes yeah. as well. Yeah. So this is really cool, really neat. Yeah. Do you get approached a lot by people who say, God, we had a loved one and we'd really, we'd really nope. love to do something at the zoo? From for time them. to time, we do what usually people want to do something like a memorial bench or we have. So I try to come up with a bunch of different offerings that our, both our guests will enjoy, or you know, of course, an exhibit offering if that's something that they're interested in. So there's really a wide variety, and um, and a, for a wide variety of budgets. You know, somebody might want to, you know, congratulate their son for graduating high school. They, they might not want to spend, you know, fifteen thousand dollars on or whatever. But we do have our pencil fence in the back. It's fifty dollars, and that name will be on that pencil fence. Or we have this for one hundred fifty. So I try to do a lot of different levels. So anybody that wants to participate and see their name on something at the zoo or be a part of it can. It, it doesn't sound uh, very cooth, but like, hey, if you want to give us some money, we'll figure out a way to make it work for you, right? You know, yeah. we're, all, we're all chasing those uh, philanthropic dollars for those yeah. folks who want to make a mark in the community. Yeah, and we, but we want to make it, truly make it work for them. So a lot of times they'll say, oh, what's up? And it's like, I want to sit and visit with you. I want to get to know you and kind of what would fit and what works. So over here, this area kind of gets overlooked. Um, and it's actually, I think, one of the most beautiful areas of the zoo. And it, I call it our watchable wildlife area. So you can come and see who's visiting during whatever time of year. Um, so this, it used to be uh, filled with all kinds of, of uh, ducks that we had, our North American ducks in here. And people would come and feed them and pay to feed them. Uh, but then in 20, I want to say 2016, even influenza breached our flyway up in this area. It was even found all the way down to, um, the closest it got to Fargo, of course, was Sioux Falls. Um, but with this new strain of AI, uh, we had to really rethink what animals we were keeping in here. Because if it actually got close enough to the zoo, uh, we'd have to put either, we'd have to take all of our birds all, and put them off exhibit into off exhibit holding to protect them. Because, of course, if one showed up that had AI on our facility, we could be forced to cull all of our birds. And so we just did not have enough housing in the back if something, an emergency like that were to happen to house all these animals for a long period of time. So at that time, what they did is they put up a, um, a big net to kind of discourage wild ducks from coming here. Then wild ducks carrying AI, no, you know, we were offside setting that problem. But when that happened, the guest experience, I think, was kind of lost because our ducks that we had got full right away and they just went and hung out back there and nobody could ever see ducks and they, everyone was so disappointed. Um, so I really rethought out the problem and then last year worked at it to change this. So what we did is this water system here is it's self-contained so it doesn't go into the rest of the zoo. So if wild ducks go come in here, it's not gonna contain anything in the rest of the zoo or contaminate. Uh, so I got rid of all of our North American ducks and these guys are just wild ones and we just put out food at a specific time in the spring so we can encourage some ducks to come in, but not too many. But if you look back, I love these cattails that come. It's just really, I, it makes me feel like I'm in the lakes area. Mm -hmm. And so one of my goals I want to do is to create a tall walking bridge through the whole thing that starts over at the Wolf Outlook 
and goes all the way through and so people could stroll through and enjoy all the wildlife in here and I could just see it lit up like that scene in the little mermaid that kiss the girl scene <laughs> so eventually here when I get some partners interested whoa, in the bridge whoa. we'll do that so Let's take something like wild ducks. Mm -hmm. Do they ever land in, uh, in the enclosure of a predator? Oh, Do you ever get a little call over the radio yes. that says like, we, you know, eagle has landed? Oh yeah, every, well, yes, uh, yes. It's been a couple of owls, you know, it, it's gonna be the wolves if, you, if you're gonna mm -hmm. have something like, and uh, yeah, every once in a while, somebody goes in there and the wolves have a great time. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> the duck may not. <laughs> But such is the circle of life, right? We spend a lot of time moving wild ducks from places they shouldn't be. <laughs> Especially when they're little, you know, when they have all the little tiny ducklings, that one's staring at us, isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. Look at he's listening, he's like, what is she saying? It's quite interesting. So, is this about us? Yeah, hmm. But they, what happens is like the ducklings can get through the little fence over there, the walkway, and then they panic, and then the mom panics and runs back and forth. So in the springtime, we spend a lot of time either moving the babies back over or moving the mom over. Do you see a lot of geese during uh, during the uh, time of the year when they're migrating? Yeah, we had, this year we had, I think we just had a pair of Canada geese in here because we we're trying not to get too many. But then they had, they had a nest in the back. So it was really fun watching. I think they had five goslings. They were around here earlier today, so they're probably in the back there somewhere. And you've got this nice little feeder too. Yes. This is something that I remember from zoos of my childhood, right? Yes. It's the, it was full of candy if you were at the bowling alley, but yep. at the zoo, it's full of some kind of a feed. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, do you get people who get pretty stoked about this? I love watching little kids because they'll just throw the whole handful at one time. <laughs> people love to feed animals if they have that opportunity, right? And they get a feeling, I guess it's a whole different interaction. So we do have it here by the ducks and then we have it back in our um, children's zoo farm area as well. Well, so, let's keep moving right, along. Let's keep moving. We're going to move past our old porcupine exhibit, and I can tell you what's in there now. Oh, well, there's a beautiful bride and groom over there. Yeah, to our left, you've got, I mean, I always call that the carousel house. Do you have a different yes. name for it? Yes, it's actually the Dietrich family um, carousel, and so it's the carousel pavilion. Uh, we have a 1928 fully restored Alan Herschel carousel. There's only four like it that are still running. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic oh. and super fast. So this is our raven. So this actually used to be the porcupine exhibit and I decided to modify it and make it a home um, for ravens. So these again are another one that was that exception. We didn't get it from another zoo. We did get these from a rehab facility through Fish and Wildlife. Ravens are unbelievably intelligent. Um, there's actually a lot more research going on right now to show that they're more intelligent than parrots are. Um, equating them to like a four or five year old child really with some of their capacity that they have. And so I was like, oh, we got to get these guys. So these ones, again, they were found, somebody found the, them when they were really uh, little and took them in home and, and tried to have them as pets mm. uh, and was giving them all sorts of weird food, but not the appropriate diet. So their bones didn't grow uh, in a way that would allow them to fly for very long periods of time. So they could not be re-released. So we got them from the rehab facility. They're beautiful and massive. I mean, they're, they're way bigger big. than I they're thought. They're both larger than my cats. Yeah, they're huge, and they're and they make these such amazing sounds. They do mimic, you know, ravens mimic all, all even human voices. The one that ours will most often hear is, we have a horse in the back, and he gets four walks a day, and so they'll mimic his <laughs> when they see him coming along 
the pathway. Okay. So they're going. So we're going to head over here by our uh, mule deer and white-tailed deer exhibit here. And now when you do visit the zoo, this is a pretty large exhibit. So sometimes you might not see them right away. You have to look towards the back. Typically, they're going to be in the back of the zoo. Oh, I see him. He's up along the fence line. And there. then um, they also love to come in this water and cool down too. So they'll be right here in front of you as well. Uh, horns versus antlers. What's the difference? I horns see you got a placard antlers. here. Again, one of my proud of our signs <laughs> here. So horns are made of uh, bone center, and they're going to be covered in this pertin this excuse me, keratin, almost like a fingernail, in the center. So horns. Here's the easy one. Horns don't come off. Okay. Antlers, they come off every single year. You know, so they're made of bone, they're, but they're not permanent. So they get that velvet over the top of them. So, yeah, that's, I think that's the easiest way to do it. So, something I, I've always been told, so like when antlers are growing in and they like are rubbing them against a tree, mm -hmm. are they shaping them? Are they, what, what, what's the point what, of that? I think they're, it's my mind, it's almost like they're kind of itchy and scratching them. Oh, it's when the okay. velvet's going to kind of come off. So they're kind of just kind of getting it off of there. Yeah, so, yeah, these are kind of cool. I like it because you can feel how this is, you know, this is definitely bone. Right. This one would have bone in the center, but the outside is, yeah, definitely like a, well, this one is kind of like a very dry fingernail. It looks like, yeah. <laughs> it looks like it's bark almost. Yeah, it needs a, like a mani-pedi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's All keep right. moving along. So, uh, we're heading towards the Dancing Crane Cafe. We are. And uh, again, that's our beautiful sign machine. We made all the whole, all the decorations on there. That's exciting for me. So as you pass on the on the left side, you'll see our Asian aviary. So once you're in the Asian area, you can definitely go through and walk through the aviary. And then on the right side, uh, we still have North America, so we have our prairie dog exhibit here. What? Prairie dogs are super fun. These guys, this exhibit, this exhibit actually goes down about 12 feet. So in the winter time, they have an you know, underneath the ground here, they have a series of all these sorts of little bedrooms and stuff. So in the wintertime, these guys go down and they basically go in what we call a torpor. So it's almost like hibernation and we don't see them again until the spring. So that's a big sign that spring has arrived in Fargo is when the prairie dogs at the zoo start popping up. <laughs> yeah. Are we, prairie dogs, I mean, they're obviously a community-based animal. They don't uh, go out on their own, their own a lot? Nope, yep, they live in these big colonies. Um, and they're really, in a way, their role, in my mind, their role in the ecosystem is they're almost like Meals on Wheels. They're everybody's food. <laughs> so one black-footed ferret could eat a hundred prairie dogs in a year. So they provide a lot of nutrients <laughs> to a lot of animals. But yes, these guys are adorable. And of course, ours are not fed to anybody. <laughs> these guys live here. And actually, we have a fantastic one in the in our vet office. A couple like a couple months ago, we did find one baby that was not doing well and his mother had just kind of left him and his eyes were open and he was really small and struggling. It was to the point where we thought, well, he's gonna pass away. So we made a choice, you have to decide, you know, are you gonna take him and hand rear him? And if so, what are you gonna do with him? Because he won't be able to go back in with prairie dogs after being hand reared. But we decided to do that. So he's gonna be our education animal, an education prairie dog, his name is Loki. He is so, Stinking adorable. <laughs> I was just itching him up this morning. So right now he's still learning, uh, but eventually he'll be harness trained. But this morning I had him out and they were exercising him and he has a, like one of those big giant exercise balls. I don't know about you, anytime I see an animal with one of those balls, it makes me laugh. Yeah. I can't help it. <laughs> and he's just like, he comes to his name and he's just running through. So cute. So, so uh, I've been to a couple zoos where they've got free roaming 
animals of some mm -hmm. kind. Uh, I think in the Duluth Zoo, they used to have a big peacock that would yep. show its feathers to people. Yeah. Um, do you guys ever talk about that? Like, is there an opportunity here for that's, something like that? That's or is a that great just question, because that's one question I get a lot, is uh, we used to have free-roaming uh, peahens, peafowls, and, and peacock. Uh, but I'd made the choice, which I kind of didn't like doing, because again, I like all the guests to be happy and da da da. Uh, but I made the choice to move them to another zoo. So one is that they didn't fit within our collection plan of being cold climate, because again, they'd have to be inside most of the year. Which again, if we have the facilities for it, that's fantastic. It's just not our plans. The other was when AI breached our flyway, because you think about it, they're, they're free flighted. They can go anywhere in the zoo, which means they can go potty anywhere in the zoo, which could put our collection at risk or I guess if there was a disease that went through. Um, so I decided to move them off to another facility. Bye-bye birdies. Yeah. yeah. All right, so yep. we're uh, the All Animal right. Health Center. Is this your vet here? Yeah, so we have our vet right on, on site. Um, right in front of his brick wall we're redoing. We had an art piece there that's being redone. Uh, but what I like about our Animal Health Center is there are windows so people can see what's happening. Like right now there's nothing happening. If things are going well, there's not much happening. Oh. Sorry, the lights are off right there. But so when we do have pre-planned surgeries or things like that, we'll let the public know. And so, for instance, our, we had two of our older wolves had to have their uh, couple of canines re removed or their teeth removed. And so we let people know ahead of time. Guests could come in, and we would have another vet or vet tech out here talking about what our vet is doing, and they can watch the surgeries or watch. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty That's cool. Really cool. Yeah, it's Ooh, again. People take you up on that. Hmm? Oh yeah, that? definitely. Yeah, it was fantastic. One day we, when we were just doing like, I can't remember if it was the pandas we were doing, a, just a, their biannual exam or whatever. A big group of five-year-olds was all the school bus gets off, and they happened to be the ones here that day, and they could see the pandas up close and and talk to the vets themselves and learn about animal health and how we keep them healthy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm really getting a sense of transparency between yes. the zoo and the guests. Yes, and that's what I want more and more of, because again, I get ex that's the stuff I get excited about, you know, about all the stuff we do behind the scenes. And to me, that's, a, that's, that's the most fascinating part of the job. So why not share it with everybody as much as humanly possible? And uh, as we reach the, I guess, northeastern part of the zoo structure here, yeah. uh, we're on the farm. We're going to the farm, that's right. So this was actually the old entrance of the zoo. This is where the zoo first started. And one of the things, as I had mentioned before, you're always refreshing. Our zoo farm, people love the zoo farm because that's where they get to pet the animals and interact and laugh at them or whatever it is. Um, but it really needed a facelift. So when we decided to give it a facelift, we again wanted to look at it in a modern way. Okay, we want people to be able to interact with the animals, but we need a message there. And what is that message? And so I decided to do modern farming inside of this. Because a lot of places you go, they either tell the story of farming from the 1800s, or you'll see like kind of a cartoon version. But again, me, behind the scenes stuff is most fascinating. You think about all the technology that farmers are using, specifically farmers in North Dakota, and what they're doing for stewardship for their land, that's like a cool story. So when you go through this building, uh, we've partnered with North Dakota Corn and Soybean Councils to create a really cool play space. And it's all actually pictures of people in North Dakota that are involved in agriculture in some way or another, if they're a soil scientist, if they're a farmer. And we included all those people in the conversations as what we should have on the signs. And what are we doing in North Dakota um, to make sure that we're stewards of our lands and the farmers here really are. So it's kind of a cool story. Well, that's very neat. I mm -hmm. also appreciate the fact that as a city kid, this is something obviously that's supposed to be 
near and dear to my heart because I'm in an egg-based state. I know. And so I get that experience that I never had as a kid. I didn't have a parents who uh, gr or grandparents who yeah. farmed. Uh, but then on the same token, when the tourists come here too, it's a little bit of history about the land that they're visiting. Yes, the place that they're visiting. And yeah, the same thing with me. Like I went crazy while I was learning from this because I can do, you know, give me an animal. I can tell you everything about that animal. How do you grow corn? I know that sounds silly. Or what is that crop that's growing? I had no idea. And so we have this really cool uh, combine in the back there. It's actually a big combine cab and kids can get in it and push all the buttons. And, and I was like a big kid when they dropped that off. I was like, what's this button for? And what, you actually do see adults going in there when they think nobody's looking. It's really fascinating. I love whenever they've got one of those fake cow milking machines where mm -hmm. it's like, you know, a simulated milking. And I'm like, I've always dreamt about doing this, but I'm not good at it. Yeah. yeah. So if it's anything like the real thing, I'm no, I'm no good at it. Well, yes. you know, this is a hands-on area. I think mm -hmm. people kind of get the gist of it on their own. Yes. So if we curve around here, if where we are we going to start going to? We're going to go over to Asia. Oh, lovely. And then also when you're in the zoo farm, make sure that you go past. We have a new nature playground in the back with all this natural material for the kids to play on and our beautiful pencil fences. But now ooh, it's nice and getting cool, isn't it? It is. It's starting to cool down, which is great. So we're going to go past our Asian garden. This is our red panda exhibit over here. Eventually the red panda exhibit will be expanded up this way. And so your viewing will be from the, red, from the Asian garden, which I think will be mm -hmm. quite spectacular. Uh, but this was our first real big contribution here in Fargo was our conservation work with Chinese red pandas. When the zoo was so tiny and young, uh, they made a significant investment to bring these pandas in and become part of the captive breeding program. And now, of course, he might be inside because um, it's pretty dang hot today and, and red pandas need to have cooler weather. So when it's hot at a certain temperature, is that, oh no, there is he is. up there? Yeah, he does have choice to go in or out. I'm surprised he decided to stay out. So, oh, I heard we were oh coming, this is right? Waylon, Waylon, excuse me, she is the female there. So we actually, at one point, were the leading breeder of red pandas in North America. So chances are, if you go to another zoo, it has probably been to or been born at Fargo. Really? And we're constantly moving red pandas behind the scenes as part of that captive breeding. So we, we do have an off-exhibit area in the back. When, so, uh, I mean, are you commonly getting requests for red pandas? I mean, are there, is there a waiting list? So what it is um, for the red pandas, it's one of those SSP ones. So we don't breed them unless we're told to. And um, so that's all pre-planned out. And so we'll get some a call like you move, a do move one from DC to your zoo with that fact that you can breed next year. And, that, and then the offspring are gonna go this zoo and that, and that zoo. Again, to make sure that you have that a nice variety in the, in the genetic What do the red pandas eat? They eat, this is funny, they do eat a lot of bamboo. Okay. Yeah, bamboo is a huge part of their diet. They also have this thing we call panda biscuits, which also has some bamboo in it, as well as all sorts of other vitamins. They do get fruit, again, we don't want to give too many, too much fruit uh, and vegetables as well. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about Sheffield, who's been the bane of my yeah, existence. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think anyone who's followed uh, the news in Fargo over the last couple of months knows mm -hmm. that you've got an escape artist. We do have a little escape here. artist. His name is Sheffield. Mm -hmm. So the first time, uh, and Sheffield really is one of those individuals, one, that he beats, he, he takes, here's, here's our knowledge of these animals. They can't do this and this and this. And Sheffield's like, I don't read your books. I do that, <laughs> that and that, you know? <laughs> So Sheffield, the first time he got out, he was in our breeding facility. So he wasn't on exhibit. It's a back area there. And we've had pandas there 
for over, you know, over 20 years. We've had, you know, dozens and dozens of pandas. No problem with how that structure was built. Uh, but Sheffield, honestly, we got here, we do our rounds every morning. He wasn't there. And there was no indication. There was no fur along the top of the fence. There was no indication if he, was he stolen? Was, you know, what, did he climb out? What happened? Um, and he actually had been able, as far as we could tell, there was an unbelievable stretch that he would have had to make on this turn back and probably just got like one male over it and be able to pull himself out. Yeah. But we did have to go public because after a couple hours, you start to, one, we're starting to be very concerned about our animal, knowing that he's most likely on property, but in a tree. But you look at all the trees, they're so dense. Mm -hmm. uh, we decided to call on the public for help. If you wanted to come up, help us look through these trees. We also wanted people to know, just in case they'd heard anything, you know, if somebody had taken him or something like that. Mm -hmm. We want the public to be, to be our friend and to be our helpers. People came out and supported us, it was amazing. We did locate him. He was right over by Gander Mountain, so just right over on the other side of the tree. In a tree, as we had thought. Mm -hmm. He's recalled commanded, so he did start to come down, but then the tree was so dense that he couldn't. Like, he, he'd get down and he's like, yeah, and then he'd lose interest in it and go back up. <laughs> and we didn't want to force him down. You definitely couldn't, you know, sedate him or anything because the tree was just, I would stand on there, I couldn't see him when wow. I was standing literally under the tree. So he picked the perfect time of year to do it. He yes. picked the, probably the perfect time of day. And I tell you, at the end, finally by 11 o'clock, I said, okay, I'm gonna climb up the tree. He's gonna climb down when I go up. He's not gonna be want to be by me. So we made basically a temporary fence around the whole tree using fence panels. We had catchers on the inside, outside. We had all our staff there, and they all held flashlights. And I went up the tree, and it was so dense. An owl flew out of that tree, and I didn't <laughs> see the owl. <laughs> it was like, Phew, you know. And I think, oh gosh, well, what? It, what if he's right in front of my face? Like, I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I keep going up to the top. I get to the very top of that tree, and I hear somebody say, "Here he comes!" And then I hear a little bit of running and no lights. So I'm at the top, <laughs> and I'm so happy because that meant they had, they had him, and of course they had him down, but I had. In the dark, get down. Now, we knew then that we had to modify that exhibit again because we found the exception, the one that has figured out something different than anybody else has. So while we were modifying that, we had put him on this exhibit. Because um, this exhibit, people think, automatically thought he got out of here because it doesn't have a top. But it's, this is uh, 59 inches high right here. And it's, the trees are great in the center, but they are trimmed back. Like there's really mm -hmm. not a way that, pandas don't jump, so. He shouldn't be able to get out of this. And um, we put him out here, well, we, and we got the other uh, holding area fixed, and it's like meaning topped and redesigned. Um, but he seemed to be enjoying himself, so we're like, well, let's just leave him out there, you know, as long as he wants to be. And then, unfortunately, in July, one of our uh, zookeepers was working, and she was using a weed, weed whipper, and ran out of battery, and she wasn't thinking, and left her shovel and rake inside the exhibit when she went to get a new battery and Sheffield is like, ooh. Use that moment. He's like, ah, I see now. And he and it was actually kind of a the video itself is was adorable. But from a from my perspective, it's like, oh no, this is not supposed to happen. So it wasn't as though any there was any design flaws or anything like that. It was yep. when something like that happens, mm -hmm. is there ever a discussion of doing something like saying, well, why don't we put like Mm -hmm. a, like a tagging method on them, like a GPS. Oh. <laughs> uh, on my dog, yeah. I think I've got I've got a little GPS tracker that's on her collar. Oh right? yeah, so all of our animals actually do have um, those little not GPS, but like they all are, they all have microchips. Uh, but so whenever something like that happens, 
Um, it's not like we just kind of go on with our day. Anytime, even with just that where it's obvious there was a shuffle in here, we have to have several meetings, both with our staff, of all the different things that could be gone, gone through and what might need to change. But then I have to write extensive reports. I mean, I had to write, I had to write a 55-page report to, to the association that accredits us and have that reviewed by all of our peers. So they review this as well. Are you up to standard? Was there something different that should be done? What should? And so each is case by case. So we did modify the one in the back. It was up to standards, but clearly this individual had, had um, a little bit stronger and mm -hmm. figured mm -hmm. it out. So we redesigned. This one, I don't think we need to redesign because honestly, it was because there was- There's some human error. A human, human error. error and human error, no matter how much you drill and train, it's bound to happen to anybody. Now you also have some absolutely gorgeous koi fish. Yes, in this pond. I know. Aren't they beautiful? Look at that big, giant white one there with the long. The white one with the, yes. uh, the fancy tail. Yes. So we do have koi over here. We have koi in all of the ponds in in Asia here. And then the, in the winter time, we do we drain the ponds, and then we have these giant uh, areas in the back that they go into, and they do kind of go into a little hibernation type stage as well. I keep goldfish, which are not koi, but they're very similar since yeah. they're based off of carp. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I love about them is how hardy they are, so that when I mess up on accident, they're less likely to lose my population <laughs> exactly. than I am with goldfish. That's why I always ones. went with goldfish as well. Yeah. What I like again in our zoo, what I really like is that we do try to have, we have the living grass, we like to have water features as much as possible in every exhibit, as well as other li living beings, so the movement of the koi. So even with the panda way up in the tree, you're still seeing life and movement and hearing water. Here's a weird question. Mm -hmm. We've been in the zoo now for an hour and a half, and I don't really notice any stink. Oh, you know, thank you. I, so, <laughs> you know, when I think of going into a bar, a barn, I think of a stink. I think of, mm -hmm. you know, even in the, like a, a pet store, mm -hmm. you, because there's all these animals and you yep. you can smell like, you know, they're all doing their business and everything Animal like smells. that. Is it just because it's open air or are these things getting cleaned uh, on oh, a yes. regular basis? Yes. Yeah. So they're, of course, they're cleaned uh, at least twice a day, you know, it's typical, but also um, it, we are outside, but then there's certain areas that in the back, like say the otters. If we were to go in the otter holding, that's sticky because that's where they have a giant, we have a giant filtration system in that that's taking care of everything and keeping the water clean. All that ammonia that's um, piling up in there. Yeah, yeah. And then we do have, we do have a big giant manure pile at the back <laughs> of the zoo. And I'm so proud of myself because they're really good about bringing that manure back out instead of letting it pile up over the whole summer and doing one big trip. We do those weekly. So, oh, that's good. That's nice, nice and clean and enjoyable. And the porcupines are always a little stinky, but just as the animals, but not terrible. But I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about? That smell mm -hmm. like you know when you're on a farm, right? Yes, yes. You know? If you go into the holding areas, that's where I feel like I can smell. Like I could love, I love going into the camel arena at night because it's got that hay smell and you feel it. Mm. You can smell that animal smell in there. So, All right, I'm seeing a Eurasian lynx. Eurasian lynx. So these are our new girls. Oh, they're awake. That's good. They're, oh, I hope they'll move around for you. So we did bring these women, these uh, Eurasian lynx in this year. They're seven years old. They are siblings. Oh they are sisters, God. I guess you would say, they're because gorgeous. they're females. Absolutely gorgeous cats. And um, they, they love this exhibit. They love to just jump all the way even up there. I want to add one more. Um, one big pad area up, up there for them to climb and jump. Right now we're watching the two of them lounge around and one is cleaning the other's oh, belly so and my heart is melting. I'd love it if they'd stand up. They're very, I mean, they're really majestic and their paws are huge. 
built for going through the snow. So your vet and your, even the people who are, you know, watching over these animals, mm -hmm. when you bring a new animal in, is it like taking a college course because you've got to learn about this animal and about its habits and, yeah, you know. so it kind of depends upon if we have somebody here that's already worked with those animals. And it depends on the species, too, because we might send zookeepers to another zoo to learn from, from their keepers there about how they're caring for a specific animal. And then, of course, we do get extensive histories of each animal as well. Our computer systems are fantastic. Any animal in a zoo, I could look it up and get its life history. And so when, they're, when they were dropped off, their zookeeper, there was a lot. I mean, this is months and months and months of communication, not only about the species in general, but about these specific animals and what their likes and dislikes are, what their you know, medical histories are. So their keepers came and brought them up. It was pretty kind of cool. So. I'm noticing a lot of pairs. Mm -hmm. So is, it, uh, is there a feeling? Is there a, a mentality behind keeping animals in pairs if possible? It depends, again, and that's on the species. So... Um, so if it's appropriate, like our fox is by herself because that's how she would live in the wild unless she had uh, offspring. These guys, these two particular, they've been together their whole life. So, you know, they wanted to be placed in, a, in somewhere that they would be together. You wouldn't obviously find two siblings like this in the wild, um, but they wanted to be housed. I they wanted to house them forever. Like that there's signs as Eurasian lynx and below it, it says lynx links. Lynx links, yes. So we always put the scientific name for the animal underneath and some animals, their scientific name is not something too terrible. So like bison or bison bison. <laughs> links, links. Llamas is great. Llama glama. I'm like, I love Ooh, it. Llama glama. But do some are very a, <laughs> difficult. On your website, do you have a link to the links? Oh, very cute. Links, we links. do have a links link. <laughs> yeah. What do, they, what do the links eat? These guys eat, they're in the wild. They, wear, they would chase after like hoofed prey. So like small deer, things like that. So they get a variety of meats here. They get ribs twice a week, like the rib cages twice a week. Um, and we do have a diet. It's a feline diet. It's um, made specifically for zoo animals. So it's primarily a variety of, of meat for those guys. <laughs> All right, and I'm looking at some camels. All right, the Bactrian camels. This is when we get a lot of questions about. A lot of people see camels and they think, of arid environments and mm -hmm. we've actually when the zoo first opened we used to get a lot of complaints like that's cruel to keep camels in north dakota but these are bactrian camels bactrian with a b they have two humps so these guys come from the, like they can go up in the mountains of mongolia they come from very diverse environments from very hot they can get extreme cold so they're perfectly adapted for life here um, in North Dakota and they, if you look at their body how it changes over the seasons like right now they're fairly lean and they don't have too much fur uh, but in the winter time they really start to bulk up and um, get quite a bit of fur if you look at their noses their noses can open and shut so that they can keep out uh, the cold and help breathe in warm you know warm the air as they're breathing in in the winter they're perfect for for us. I have a cool story and you can, but um, we have, we had a calf born last summer. I think it was last summer, yes. So we have cameras whenever we're gonna have a birth so we can monitor. And within the first 24 hours, she still had not nursed. She was standing and doing everything else, but not nursing. And with camels, that becomes quite concerning. If they go 24 to 36 hours without their mother's milk, they can get this thing called, what, it's like gut closure or something, um, they die. Quick, they can quickly die. Mm. And so this just shows how zoos work together. So right away, we were working with Minnesota Zoo. Um, they have a wonderful camel collection there. 
with their experts, okay, we've tried this, she's not nursing. We milk the mother and we're trying to bottle raise her, she's not nursing. Um, we're becoming concerned and they, okay, and at one point they said, okay, well, she really needs a transfusion of um, camel plasma if you want to give her a good shot. Well, of course, we don't keep, right. but they do. They're much bigger, they have freezers and freezers, and their, their staff member said, if you can get in your car right now, I'll meet you halfway. And so, and she, I mean, she didn't get paid the rest of the day to do that, but she goes in her car. I go home, I have my kids, so I knew my kids are gonna whine about being in a car for a long time, so I kind of pictured like, I flew the door open, like, we're saving a camel! <laughs> and they're like, hooray! And they run the car. <laughs> so we get there, we meet them halfway, get back, our staff's waiting, our vet's waiting. Uh, we IV her, uh, give her that camel plasma, the next day she starts perking up and then we're able to start guiding her and um, and then she was good to go. Wow. But I always like to tell that story because it just shows how we all work together. If you think about um, how many animals there are in the world, um, we really do, uh, accredited zoos do need to use each other to use each other's knowledge and staff and we do all the time, we share our knowledge. Uh, you guys must get a lot of school groups. We do get a lot of school groups. It's really, really quite fun. School groups, daycares, things like that. And then we do have uh, educators on site too that go out into the schools and try to partner with the schools. Cause they might be learning, you know, some kind of STEM activity related that is related to an animal and we can bring out owl, owl pellets or whatever it is. So this is our um, wings of the Orient we call. So these are Asian birds in here, they're free flighted so people can go in there. It's another opportunity to feed and see the birds fly above their heads and quite beautiful. And you're gonna head over to Talkin' Ridge. So one thing we did introduce this year is camel feeding. And um, so pretty affordable, it's like $5 a family, a person can come and feed our camels. So you're gonna do that daily cool. as well, which is super fun. Get up close with the animals. Oh, this tree. We lost uh, quite a few trees this year with those bad storms we oh, had. Oh, no. Yeah, one of those ones actually blew off the whole roof of our camel, our, our talking holding. It's so, like 81 mile per hour winds. I know that this last winter when we had just all of that snow, you put a call out saying, hey, bring your shovel and yeah. we could use a hand. Yeah. So the community's involvement must be really important, especially when the yeah. unthinkable happens. It is, yes. You know, um, and. Our, we've been, our community, people want to help. They want to be a part of it. And not everybody wants to like help by donating money. Some people want to help by giving their time, which is so much more precious, really, even than money is. It's also a way people can be involved. Um, oh, here we go. And of course, if there was a real, real emergency as well, all of us accredited zoos work together. Because say, if you had, like say a zoo that happens to flood, there's only so many people that have the knowledge on how to move these animals safely. Mm -hmm. So whenever a zoo is an emergency, um, all of us pitch in and help and send our experts. That's great. Yeah. So these animals sometimes get overlooked because they're um, a hoofstock and I think sometimes people just kind of walk past hoofstock, but these are quite fabulous. These are a Szechuan Takin. They are a national treasure of China along with the giant uh, panda. And so they actually came to the United States, their first talk-in were given to the San Diego Zoo in 1987. And within 10 years of that, right, give or so, uh, the Red River Zoo had, had talk-in. And so we're, um, there's very few zoos that house talk-in and breed talk-in. 
And so within the industry, people get very excited. Zoo nerds get very excited that we have Talkin, and we've made quite a contribution to, um, to Talkin breeding and, and knowledge of care in, in zoos. Beautiful animals. Great, so I have to make a quick caveat. I did find some papyrus fawn. Oh, did you? In the zoo. It's right here on the sign for the Szechuan Talkin. So, the, I, so I didn't make that. So Sally did not make that. I did not make that. No. All right, well, if we're gonna so go see the Talkins, don't look at the sign though. I just saw one of the Talkins pee. Oh, look at that. I was gonna be like, I'm gonna keep this on the down low. really cool though, and like the one thing that, that I, I keep thinking about, maybe it's just the, the hair pattern. Mm -hmm. It makes it look like they have really thick forearms. Yeah, it does, you know, and it? they're almost lumbering like a gorilla might as it yeah. walks. That's what I was thinking, kind of the way the, the rear end is pointed yeah, down. Yeah, the way that they, yeah, and they they look like bison, but they're really actually more, you could think of them more like a giant goat. Okay. Extremely powerful animals. Right now they're waiting because they know it's towards the end of the night, they know they're going to get to go inside. But these guys are actually fairly dangerous animals, um, so we're, we work with them only protected contact, which means you cannot go in with them. Um, and so we have a series of training panels back there. So the Talkin are trained to go, come in on command. They'll step on their scale so that we can weigh them every week. We do weigh all of our animals, depending on the species, you know, weekly, bi-weekly you know, bi or monthly. Um, so they're trained to get on there and, then, and wait and go back to their bedroom. So it's fantastic what we can do through, through that opera conditioning and training. They have great faces. They do. Faces and the rumor that I have heard is if you start to look um, the movie Beauty and the Beast, the mm -hmm. animators use Talkin when they were designing. It can really see it when you think. I start definitely see yeah. that. Especially in the way that the horns, those are not antlers, but they're horns, That's correct? right, good job. Thank you, I and learned I think something. the nose as it comes down from the eyes, because yep. he's got that big uh, schnauzer. Yep, and then when they, our male is still pretty young, so he's still getting his thicker fur in and growing bigger. But man, they are just... I'm always amazed when I watch a hoofed animal on rocks. Obviously, this is very boulder-filled. Yeah. Because you'd think, well, they're not suited for being on that terrain, but those hooves have, you know, adapted over yeah. the years to make them great climbers. I know, isn't it? It's, it's, you can watch on YouTube some videos of, like, you're like, wow, mm -hmm. some animals, like, really in the mountainous areas. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, this is great. And so what we do for these guys is we will spread their food throughout and spread their treats throughout this whole exhibit so they have to kind of forage a little bit for it every morning and they do get browsed so um, we cut different branches of our trees off and these guys can eat it one thing we always have to consider whenever planting a tree bringing a plant in is if it's toxic to these sure. animals so we have a whole giant list um, do, you, um, do you ever give them like volleyballs to play with or anything like that or do yep. you leave them to play on their own? No, we do. We give, um, it depends again on the species, but different species can have different toys and it has to go through an approval process that we have, you know, set out. But yeah, they can get all sorts of different things every day. Like I said, every day we require the staff to do two different types of enrichment for these animals. So again, it could be a, one of those toys or we like to call them toys or, you know, something to physically stimulate them or it might be a new smell. It might be a new food, a new object, yeah. I uh, remember at the Duluth Zoo, their polar bear's favorite toy was a one gallon ice cream jug. Oh, yeah. And they were like, yep, you know, we've given them like $400 zoo, you know, <laughs> oh, specialty know, right? toys. And they're like, he likes the ice cream tub, flips it up, sometimes he wears it like a hat. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> it's his favorite. I know, you can be really creative with those things because again, they, the purchase ones are really expensive. But you take the concept and you can 
you take fire hose and you can make it into a really cool ball. So the fire department will mm. donate their old fire hose here when they can't use it anymore. We've used it to make beds and to make climbing structures and all sorts of things. Oh, that's very neat. And resourceful. What, uh, what are tours like here? As far as... I mean, do, do, do people come in and arrange yeah. tours? Are there yes. regular tours that so, you guys give? Yeah, so we just started doing, as you go on our website, you can book a tour and we have Tessa, who's our experience guide. Um, and she can detail the tour kind of for what it is that the people want to learn and what they're interested in. And of course, I'm always open to do tours whenever because I love talking about people in the zoo. So now I'm, right now I'm calling this Palace Cat Alley. So this is Elvira. Um, Elvira is the fourth oldest palace cat in any zoo in the entire world. Dun, 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 Elvira. <laughs> so she is now retired. She's probably inside right now. She is retired from the breeding program, but um, and she has an off exhibit area. But I thought let's put her out here for this summer. Um, while we're, we might be redoing this. Uh, it used to be squirrels in this one, which were super fun, but they lived out their life, and so now we're looking, kind of deciding what we're going to do in the future. Uh, palace cats are quite important. Now we have three, and people will probably wonder why do they have three in a row. Mm -hmm. um, and that is part because these two are actually always going to be here. These are part of our breeding program. Palace cats, if you haven't seen them before, are, they look like the original grumpy cat. They're <laughs> a small, they're a small uh, cat, wild cat species from Asia, Central Asia. So they have really like squished kind of heads. They're flat on the top, which I suppose helps them to kind of camouflage into their environment. But also they have circular pupils where cats usually do not. Mm -hmm. So they have a really unique look. They're extremely uh, difficult to breed in captivity. Um, one, they're only fertile for between 24 and 48 hours a year. Other than that, you gotta keep them apart. Mm. Um, and, and then the second is, they have the highest infant mortality rate of any cat species. So 70 to 75% of their offspring will die within the first 30 days of life. Because where they're from is so cold, Try to see if who's, oh, there's one out right over there on the top. I was wondering if that was one of them in the next pattern. She's over here on the top. We can go over that way if you look. Um, because it's so cold, they don't have any natural immunity. But we've had a resounding success here, really, truly. And I think the main reason is not, of course, the quality care that we give our animals, but the environment here so much replicates where they're from, the number of hours throughout the year of light versus day mm -hmm. and things like that. But in order to, like, for example, our last palace cat litter that we had, that was probably a three, three and a half year endeavor. We had to work with China, or excuse me, Japan, because the recommended mail was from the mm -hmm. zoo. So we had to do all this international um, paperwork to be transporting the animal in and things like that. Then we had to work with Cincinnati Zoo and we'd send monthly samples so we could get the hormone samples so we knew that we're putting them together at the right time. So it was several you know, years worth of work that went into that. And then when the kittens are born and you hold your breath and you overprotect them, we did kind of close off this area of the zoo because, you know, they do have that. We didn't want anything to go wrong. No stresses. Yeah, just nothing to keep it quiet for them since they had such a difficult time those first 30 days. And then they succeed and they're like, oh, you know. That's amazing. How many zoo. babies are in litter typically? Um, it, we've had, I think, we've had litters of five. I think we've had two litters of five here and a litter of three. Okay. So it really depends. Kind of like a house cat, I sure. suppose. Um, Who's this? This is... This is actually Sam. Normally, this is Stanley. This is our white nape crane. It's a beautiful big crane. Oh, and she's sleeping. So this is Sam. Normally, the, you'll see one up here. Is 
Stanley, he's a he's quite vocal and he kind of watches out over people and dances quite often. Um, but she is going to be moving to another zoo. Uh, there are only 100 of these guys in captivity, so they're quite important. Oh, she's totally sleeping. She's so relaxed. Mm -hmm. um, she's got some nice shade going on. Yeah. The grass is a perfect length. To be and comfy. So Sam and Stanley actually are the most genetically valuable pair that there is. Um, so we've been trying to breed them for several years. Unfortunately, she doesn't like him all that much. When it becomes breeding season, she will try to kill him. She's just mm. not into not into Stanley at all. When you've got animals and they don't seem to take to each other, mm -hmm. how long do you wait before you say it's time to make a call here? Well, this, these guys we had, like, God, they probably had them for close to a decade. Really? So we are committed to the animals. Mm -hmm. And we could have managed the two, like we could have brought her into the back and, and had her in the off exhibit area and had another one. Um, but because she is so important genetically, she should be part of that breeding program. And so they did find another male that she would be um, compatible with that they would want, you know, as, as far mm -hmm. as genetically. Um, so we decided, you know, we're gonna call it. And it's hard after so many years of trying, cause you're thinking, we're, we're doing in vitro fertilization, we're doing all this kind of cool stuff. And then it's like, okay, we're gonna give up and try a new one. Um, what happens when an animal passes away? Mm -hmm. So every single animal that passes away at the zoo has to have, we have a necropsy done, which is kind of like an autopsy that tells us exactly what happened. Cause we want to be sure, uh, you know, if it was a disease or what, what exactly happened with it. And then we determine, typically they're incinerated unless we want to use some portions for one of our outreach programs. So if you needed, a, if we wanted a skull to be as part, mm. a wolf skull to be mm -hmm. part of our biofacts collection, then we do something different. Do you guys have like a little private ceremony here at the zoo? Like, I imagine I lost uh, I lost a cat a year ago, mm -hmm. and it was devastating to our family. Yeah. So and I can only imagine what it's like to be working with these animals all day long and to have to say goodbye. The zookeepers are devastated. And that was something I learned early on in my career as well, because I would go home, like you have your favorite animal that you worked with every day. and But I had to learn how to, if, if you want to, if you want to love animals and you want them in your life, you're going to have to learn that they that each time I Each them. time I've ever gotten a new pet, I'm like, I'm, I know I'm putting a down payment on sorrow in the future know, at right? some point. But, you and know, then there's some of them it's that, the trade-off you make. Some of them touch your heart more than others, so it's harder, but it's always really, it's hard for the zookeepers, particularly in the vet staff, because they're the ones you, that are with them every day. I imagine it's hard for patrons, too, when you've got a kid who keeps coming back and says hello to Stanley over and over and yes, over again to find out that Stanley's there. not there anymore. Well, a lot of your animals have fans that kind of follow them yes. a bit. Well, and the other thing is, we've been around 20 years, so a lot of our animals are getting older. But one one of the best ways that I dealt with that was we had this other cow, I think his name was Domino or something. Um, people loved him. He had been here the, like since the zoo opened and he would lick everybody and they just absolutely died. But he had cancer and we knew at some, and we were treating him for cancer, but we knew at some point we were gonna have to put him down because it was terminal. So I just started writing on both on Facebook and through our email blast, his story. Rather than just, you know, one day he's not there, Here's a story. He has this disease. This is what we're doing for him. And then mm -hmm. as, he, as it progressed, he had to wear these blinders to kind of protect his eyes because, you know, of his treatments and things that, so we had a picture of him with his blinders. Okay, this is what we're doing and here's why. And then when it kind of became time where we had to make that choice, um, right after doing it, we just sent all those emails, you know. T today was the last day that we decided to end it because of, you know, give him a peaceful. And people, 
the support was amazing. Mm-hmm. It's that transparency and being people so that they can alert their kid, okay, he's not, you know, here's what's going on or whatever. If they come here that much, they care. Right. You know, and then if they're, to be honest too, if, if you don't do that, you know, some people are anti-zoo. They think, oh, you know, we're just keeping these animals in cages or whatever. No, no. We dedicate our entire life to the welfare and well-being of these animals for a purpose. And so we need to share that. Because if an animal just disappears, people will say, oh, the zoo just killed the cow. They didn't know that our staff has been working, doing um, radiation or whatever with this animal for the last six, seven months and spending the night here to sleep to make sure he's okay. And that's a good story to tell. I can see some complaining about Mm -hmm. you keeping the cow and then going to McDonald's and getting some food. (laughs) We do get complaints on our current cow. Really? She is a retired Dutch belted dairy cow. So Dutch belted have really high hips. This is a good story, so I'm going to wait until he stops talking. The time is now 7 p.m. and the zoo is closed. Doesn't that remind you of Greece? (laughs) (laughs) We've closed down this zoo, everybody. (laughs) Never closed down a zoo before. (laughs) So she's a Dutch belt. Charlotte has a Dutch belt couch, so they have really high pronounced hips. But in addition to that, she's 17 years old, and so your body doesn't kind of do the same things when you're older. And um, she's retired dairy, so she's a little leaner. And so people see her, and even people that are used to seeing dairy cows, they see that rear end, and they think she's not being fed or cared mm. for. And she actually, you know, they're supposed to weigh between 800 and 1,500 pounds. She's at 1,350, right where we want her. Because at 17, you don't want to put a lot of heavy weight on her, or she's going to have some arthritis issues. But if you see her from the front, she's like a barrel. Like, she holds her body up here. So one thing I kind of struggle with is how do we get that story out? Because if somebody complains about that, that means they do care about animals. and. They, but if they don't happen to interact with one of us or read the sign, how do we get that word out? Like, hey, we're on the same page. Here's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, she gets this much food and weighed this week and that week. And, you know. Well, I think about Domino, and it might sound weird to say this, but how often does a cow get to die from cancer? Right. right? How yeah. often does a cow get to have a long life yes. where they get medical treatment for their cancer? Right. You know, I mean... Domino led a really good life yes. here at the zoo. Yeah. A much better life than most cows. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, they do live longer and filled with people who care. You know, it, it's such a unique story. The animals who are here now, the animals who are here before. The animals uh, who will be here in the future. I mean, it really, it <laughs> really is quite port. fascinating. Yes. <laughs> so, so pumped about that. As <laughs> things go forward, as mm-hmm. people are, you know, meandering their way through to the end of the zoo, of course, mm-hmm. you got a great gift shop. Yes, we do have a great gift shop. Great for gifts, not even just on zoo day, but if you've got a zoo lover in your life. Yeah. What are what are some things that, uh, like if if like a common myth about the zoo that you wish you could let people know about? I think the most common myth about our zoo is that we're we're small and there's no way we can grow. Uh, we have 32 acres. To give you an idea, Central Park Zoo is six acres, and so we have a lot of space to grow and also to change exhibits, again, as, as you can change up exhibits. So we are not small, but the biggest thing I want people to know is that we, and again, small in conjunction with big giant zoos, but we're small but mighty because we're, it, we are very purposeful here and we are really dedicated to animal care, welfare, and conservation and really truly saving wildlife and wild spaces. And when you come to the zoo, make sure you visit us. If you see one of our staff members, we love talking to everybody. We love answering questions. And we love getting suggestions as well. 
I would say, uh, here's a common myth about your zoo that I would dispel myself. You're open in the winter. <laughs> we are. We are open every single day. It's going to be quiet, of course. You know, we're okay, we're closed on Christmas. But throughout the winter, because I figure, you know, if we're here anyway, taking care of the animals, working in the office, if it's a nice day in the winter, people want to come out and get outside with their kids. And it really, because we have codes adapted animals, it's really a dynamic time to see them. Yeah, especially when you're talking about the wolves. You're talking about an entirely different coat of yeah. fur on most oh, of the they animals. Look, they look totally different. And then you know what we do? We allow people to bring sleds in too so they can go sledding on what? it. Yeah, tons of activities. Hot cocoa, you know, roasting marshmallows, whatever we can do to have some fun. Oh, this is so. very, very cool. Yay! Uh, Sally, thanks for the awesome tour of the zoo today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What's the uh, website if people want to start making plans for their visit? RedRiverZoo.org and definitely check us out on Facebook. We have a really dynamic page. A huge thanks to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty for sponsoring this podcast. Folks, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, contact Natalie Deutsch today because Natalie Deutsch is not only a previous podcast guest, she's somebody who's going to care enough to sell your property for top dollar. She's also going to find you the best price possible if you're purchasing a new home. Last year on average, Natalie earned her clients $4,000 over list price on their homes and sold them faster than the market average. On average, Natalie's selling a home every 3.74 days. That's two homes a week. Those numbers don't lie. Find out why Natalie is one of the top agents in this entire market. Get a hold of her today, Natalie at HatchRealtyFM.com. You can also call 701-388-9338 or go on to LiveFargoMoorhead.com. That's LiveFargoMoorhead.com. Read all of her amazing reviews and then listen to her episode of JJ Meets World. Thanks again to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty. That's going to wrap it up for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode of JJ Meets World and would like to help us continue to produce two new episodes every week, you can donate to our Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash JJ Meets World and donate today. Even as little as a dollar a month can go a long way. Visit our website at www.jjmeetsworld.com or hit up our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the sites the kids are using these days. If you'd like to stay up to date on new episodes of JJ Meets World, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever you consume the podcast that you love. JJ Meets World is produced every week by Tucker Lucas. You can find out more about Tucker's work by checking out www.moonbasemaria.com. If you want to get in touch with your host with the most, go to linebenders.com, and you can find direct contact info for JJ. At what point do we realize that we are animals in the zoo of life? And people are looking at us all the time. And if that's true, I would like to know what my official scientific name is. Jajicus Totalicus. Mm-hmm.